You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, A Chosen People. Good evening, friends. Welcome to week four. How many of you are getting a little nervous because I'm going way too slowly to make it through the whole Bible? I know you're out there because that would be me. Well, rest assured, we are going to pick up the pace. Like I said last week, we've got to take our time to lay a quality foundation. But tonight we're headed to the end of Deuteronomy. Remember, it's not about every little detail. We're simply following the storyline, seeking to know God better. Speaking of, this seems like an excellent time to reiterate something. Tonight we're going to begin looking at Israel's history. And I realize that many sincere Christians just don't find this super interesting. Believe it or not, I understand because I am not a history buff. But that being said, the Bible is different than any other history book. Three reasons why we should care about the history of the Israelites. Number one, if you are joined to Christ, you have also been adopted into a massive spiritual family. That means you have a new identity and full rights of an inheritance to come. But you also have a history. You've received a heritage of a spiritual family that traces back to Adam and Eve. If you are in Christ, these men and women of the Old Testament are not just characters. They are your brothers and sisters. I want you to care deeply about this family heritage. Secondly, it's with this family that Jesus shares human DNA. Knowing that he is coming and will be born from this lineage should make us lean in. Where is he? When will he appear? And lastly, Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. If we're looking to know God through his word, we must seek him not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old. Those who write off the Old Testament God as being wrathful or irrelevant are missing the entirety of the story. They're missing his heart. So are you now fully convinced? Great. I hope you drank some coffee this afternoon. Let's jump in. So last week we sat in the grief of the fall when humanity rejected their creator king. Yet the sweet beginnings of Eden were not lost forever. God promised a deliverer in Genesis 3.15, one who would destroy the deceiver and redeem his people. So we've arrived at this place of watching, waiting for the promised offspring with expectancy. We can actually see this expectancy in Eve herself. Take a look at her words in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Commentators widely agree that this statement conveys a sense of optimism, almost as if she's like, yes, this is the one. Tragically, we know that this is not the deliverer at all, but actually a depraved sinner who would be the first murderer. I think sometimes we can be so familiar with these stories that we just breeze right through. But try to identify with Eve for a moment. Can you imagine going from the Garden of Eden to her new reality? As much as we grieve the brokenness of sin, how much more so would she who once enjoyed the beauty of the Lord's presence? Eve gives birth to a pair of brothers, Cain and Abel. By their offerings, Abel honors the Lord and Cain does not. But even when he's admonishing Cain, we can hear that same tone from God as in Eden. Instead of striking him dead on the spot, he exhorts him to repent 
Rise up, have dominion over that sin that is crouching at your door. Don't let it destroy you. But Cain's heart is stone cold and he murders his brother Abel. The message here is obvious. Look how pervasive and destructive sin is. I mean, this is literally the second generation of humans and we already have a murder on our hands. But again, think of their mom. She only had two sons. One of them is dead and the other, his killer. How do you ever recover from something like that? I often wonder if she was crushed by the guilt and grief. We aren't told exactly, but at the end of Genesis 4, there's a flicker of hope. Another son is born to Adam and Eve named Seth, which means he appointed. Eve died never having seen God's promise fulfilled. But her baby boy, Seth, was appointed by God to carry the line of the Messiah. I can't help but think she understood that in part. So what can we learn of God through Adam and Eve's family story? I think that it's his purposes will go forward. They will be accomplished despite our sin. And what perspective we have on this side of history to see, God, see how God was always orchestrating his plan, even in the midst of utter depravity. Maybe you need a reminder of that for today. I, the Lord, do not change. After the first murder, humanity continues on a downward spiral until we come to Noah. Things have gotten really bad at this point. Would you open up your Bibles with me to Genesis 6? I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 to start us off. And as I do, just note the description of the state of things. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So right away there in verse 5, we see the wickedness was great the state of man's heart was only evil continually. That is total person corruption. It's just a cancer of the sin nature. You know, I've heard the conversations of, what was it actually like back then? Do you think it was worse than today? Every generation thinks that their generation is the worst yet, right? But it is food for thought. At the end of the day, there's really no way to know. But I think it's worth noting that this is before God imparted his law. And one of the key functions of the law is to clearly communicate a standard of right and wrong. This actually serves in forming our conscience, but that's another topic for another day. My point is that the law is meant to restrain evil and thereby promote order and safety in society. So even though our morals are decaying today, we still have law and those who enforce the law. Noah's era is literal lawlessness in the fullest sense of the word. But in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And continuing on to verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Here's an example of that concept that I had you start dealing with in your homework. Now what do we do with this? Does this mean that he wasn't a sinner? Well, no, of course, that can't be it. We just learned last week that every single human being inherits the sinful nature from Adam. 
But at face value, it sounds like his good behavior is earning him something. The point of the story has to be more than be obedient like Noah, or I'm going to walk away with an implication that I can earn God's favor. We need a big old theological timeout here. Maybe you would have read straight past this phrase and not thought anything of it, but stuff like this just always jumps out to me. Like, wait a minute, that sounds different than what I understood. This is a huge benefit to having the complete word of God in our hands. Scripture interprets scripture. Since this verbiage occurs all throughout the Old Testament, it's important that we get it right from the start. Eternal salvation has always had and will always have the same progression. Did you earn your salvation? No, neither did Noah. Take a look at this order of salvation, as theologians call it. It always begins with the grace of God God's unmerited, unearned favor towards the sinner. He must open our eyes to our need for him. We would never desire him otherwise. Next is saving faith. This is when we know the truth, we believe the truth, and we entrust ourselves to it. We're all in. It's our only hope. And then comes justification. This is being made right with God. And for all practical purposes, this happens almost simultaneously with coming to faith. And then we enter this process of sanctification, where we grow in holiness, being increasingly conformed into his likeness. Remember that penny analogy from the beginning? Just being scrubbed so that his image is more clear and vibrant in us. And where are we headed? Glorification. In God's presence, free from sin. This is the trajectory that every child of God is on. But when it comes to justification, how are we made right with God? It's by saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So friends, did God change his mind halfway through as to how people are saved? No. The Old Testament believers were saved in the same manner as we are through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot I don't know about how that worked, but I do know this. Jesus Christ is the only means to reconciliation with the Father, period. As linear thinkers, this is really difficult to grasp. It's just that we live in different parts of history, before and after Christ. Hopefully this image will be helpful. As believers who live after Christ, we look back on his work and are saved by grace through faith. The believers who lived before Christ looked forward towards the fulfillment of God's promises and are saved by grace through faith. Do you know what I want to know? How much did they understand? What do you think they could grasp of all that was to come? Regardless, I hope this just stirs up a wonder for the Spirit of God who has been opening dead sinners' eyes since the beginning chapters of Genesis. 
on this side of the cross, we can marvel at the gradual unveiling of this mystery which culminated in our Savior. So back to Noah. This all fits together. How should we understand these phrases in Genesis 6? It's true that God is pleased by our obedience. I mean, what parent wouldn't be? But other, what other word did we just look at that had favor in its definition? Right, grace. Do we earn grace? No. It is God's unmerited favor to extend himself to us. So based on what we just talked about, Noah was born spiritually dead in his sin like the rest of us. But God's favor was upon him. And in grace, the Spirit opened Noah's eyes to who God was. He responded in faith, believing and entrusting himself to God as Lord of his life, even though he didn't have the full picture. When Genesis 6-9 describes Noah as blameless and righteous, it doesn't mean sinless. Let's just keep this as simple as possible. Saving faith is what makes each of us righteous in God's sight. But then our lives will begin to display evidence of that faith. Noah was on the same trajectory as us. He believed the Lord and trusted himself to him. And his life was marked by obedience and devotion. You know this concept from James 2. Faith without deeds is dead. The actions do not earn your salvation, but rather they prove it. They prove genuine faith. Now, on to the flood itself. Anybody else struggle with this story? I purposely chose a picture that seemed closer to reality. The flood is just one of those stories of God's wrath that just turns our stomach a little and feels difficult to defend. How could a loving God wipe out almost all of humanity? It's okay to have that reaction, but don't look away. What does God want us to see and understand about who he is? Back in Genesis 6-6, we see some emotion from God. The ESV says, God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Divine regret is different than our regret, as is every emotion of God. But the point here is his grief. He knows all that we are forfeiting by sinning. He does not delight in judgment like a cold, heartless dictator, but rather is grieved by our folly. Here's the thing, however. God's righteous wrath is very real. We can't dodge the fact that God destroyed all life on the earth except for those preserved in the ark. God is loving and merciful, but he is also holy and righteous and just. You only need to squirm over Genesis 6 if you have to defend Genesis 6 without the rest of the Bible. We need the whole counsel of God to build out our understanding of God's character. In our day and age, we tend to have a high view of love and grace and a low view of God's holiness. These things go in cycles. If one generation swings too far one way, then a few years later we'll be at the opposite end of the spectrum. But a biblical understanding of God requires us to hold all of his attributes in tension. A high view of grace and a low view of holiness leads to the downplaying of sin. I'm going to guess you've seen that in our culture today. But the scriptures tell us the true story, what's really real. God declares that the wages of sin is death. 
look at Genesis 6:11 with me. Again, noting the descriptions of how this compares to creation. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. I'll just go on to 12 as well. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So our description here is corrupt. What was the adjective at the end of Genesis 1? Good, right? And remember this concept of filling from last week, that God creates the form and then he fills it. What was the earth meant to be filled with? It was meant to be filled with his glory. It was meant to be filled with his image. And what is it filled with now from Genesis 6? Right, violence, corruption. And so the flood is both an outpouring of judgment, but also God's grief. It's like an undoing of creation, so to speak. Yet even in this display of wrath, we see his mercy. He provides deliverance through judgment. This theme is everywhere in scripture. Tonight, it's the remnant of those who were in the ark delivered through judgment. From Adam and Eve last week, it was the atoning uh, skin that covered them as they were thrust from paradise. That was deliverance through judgment. As I mentioned earlier, this general impression is that God is wrathful in the Old Testament and he's merciful in the New. But if you look for his mercy in the Old Testament, it is everywhere. I don't want to downplay the loss of life in the story of Noah. But a proper understanding of God's holiness should actually leave us humbled that he would be merciful to spare anybody at all. We deserve nothing. Just as God delivered Noah and his family through the judgment of the flood, so we are delivered through judgment by the cross of Christ. The horrors of the flood are like the crushing wrath that we deserve. And God poured that out on his son instead of on us. So it's like we're now in the ark of Christ, safe and secure, delivered through judgment and recipients of mercy. The sun eventually came back out. The waters eventually receded. And as Noah exits the ark, God enters a covenant with him. Adam and Eve kind of functionally had a covenant going on with God, but this is the first official mention of covenant in the Bible. Noah offers a sacrifice. God promises to never again destroy the earth with a flood. And we'll talk about covenant a little bit more in a bit. But in your homework, I asked you to compare these verses from this event with the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. They're so similar. A lot of the same verbiage there. It's like this is a fresh start, but yet God's heart and his intention haven't changed. Fill the earth with my glory. Represent me. Glorify me with godly dominion. So in Noah, there's this massive narrowing in of humanity before they rebuild. In the workbook, I asked you what would have been lost if God had wiped everybody out? Because, you know, the thought is, well, just start over. Start completely fresh. And there's a lot of things we might say, but at the end of the day for me, God made a promise 
that the deliverer would come from Eve. And so that lineage needed to stay intact. Even in this catastrophic event, we not only see his wrath and his mercy, but also his faithfulness to keep his word. Now, it doesn't take long after they're off the ark for that downward spiral to return. Ironically or not, this new man who's commissioned to represent God plants a garden, a vineyard, and falls into sin. Humanity's sinful nature wasn't washed by the flood. And these things continue to snowball until we come to Babel in Genesis 11. Did you consider how the sin of Babel correlates with that original sin in the garden? There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same pride. It's the same idolatry and distrust of God. And now we see that here, just on unashamed display, the people are collaborating. They're having dominion but not in a way that honors God, in a way that is seeking to glorify themselves. This is autonomy. This is self-governance instead of submitting to their creator. This symbolism goes even deeper, however. Does anyone know what city would come to be built at this site? Yes, you're right, Babylon. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I first heard it. Because if you know anything about Babylon, throughout the whole rest of Scripture, it becomes this iconic city of idolatry. It's like everything that the Lord is against is Babylon. But guess what? In Revelation 18, John prophesies the final destruction of Babylon. So what does that mean for you? It means that there will be an end to this. Evil, the curse of sin, will not go on forever. Our king will be victorious over his enemies and will usher in his perfect garden kingdom. I'm going to keep reminding you of that. You know how the story of Babel ends. God confuses their language so they literally can't communicate anymore and disperses them all over the earth. And so it's kind of this hopeless scene like, now what? Where is the deliverer? And then we turn the page to Genesis 12. And who do we meet in Genesis 12? Abram, right. God's plan is not thwarted by our sin. Abram's obedience to the Lord is evidence of his faith, just like Noah. Genesis 15, 6 says, His faith was credited to him as righteousness. God chose him, set his favor upon him. He believed and trusted himself, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His bold acts of obedience were the fruit of faith. God covenants himself to Abraham in sort of this three-part puzzle. We see it in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. But first, let's talk a bit more about covenant. This is a definition for you. A formal binding promise or agreement. We have a general working knowledge of this, but we have absolutely lost the significance of it in our cultural context. Turns out that humans aren't inherently good at keeping their word. But when God enters covenant, 
you can be sure it will stand because his word never fails. Marriage is probably the best example of covenant that we know, though it's, again, a broken picture. But because it's legally binding and it's also relational. You know those traditional vows of till death do us part? Well, we have a picture of that type of commitment in Genesis 15. God cuts covenant with Abram, and it's not as simple as just signing on the dotted line. So this is a traditional practice of this time that may be lost on us if we don't have the context. But he instructs him to cut up multiple animals and birds in half, lays them out along the sides to form a path through the middle. And the purpose of this was to have both parties that are entering the covenant to pass together through the middle of these dead animals. And the meaning there is to say, if I don't keep my end of the deal, may it be to me as these slain. That's pretty graphic. But who passes through the animals in Genesis 15? God. Just God. Abram is passed out like God put him in a sleep. He doesn't even know what's going on. God alone is ratifying this covenant and taking full responsibility to keep it. And what does he promise, Abram? Three things mainly. An offspring that would grow into a nation, land, and that all nations would be blessed through him. Now before we get into these specifics, it's important to note that each covenant that we come to in the Old Testament is, it marks a progression of God's plan of redemption. So what starts out very broad, like I was describing last week, is going to continue to hone in and in and in, get more specific. So this isn't just about Abram. Each of these things are pushing us forward in a more specific manner to that deliverer to come. So in these promises to Abraham, do you hear the cultural mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion and subdue. God is commissioning this man to be the patriarch of a specific family who would become a nation who would be tasked with carrying his kingdom mission into the world. And so the promised offspring isn't just about Abraham and Sarah finally having a baby. It's about a lineage from which the snake crusher will come. And an entire people group that are set apart for God himself. The land isn't just some perk that you finally have a homestead. This is literally God's establishing his kingdom on earth. That was the intention behind this. And the blessing isn't just some random act of kindness, but gospel hope for the one who would come and once again bring heaven and earth together. I just stumbled across this in my Bible reading the other day. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
from the very beginning. This man, this family, this nation were meant to be that spring of life to the whole world, like we talked about in Eden. God's blessing of eternal salvation would run through them like conduit. It wasn't meant to stay there. From Abraham comes Isaac, followed by Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. And from him come the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's in Jacob's blessing of his sons in Genesis 49, right before he dies, where he says, the kingdom and the scepter will not depart from who? Judah. It's just one more layer. We're getting a little more specific. The tribe of Judah. Now our eyes are trained. We know he's coming from here. It's through these real men, their families, their wives, their stories that God is bringing about redemption. Through Jacob's son Joseph, the Israelites wind up in Egypt by the end of Genesis. Now we just finished studying the first half of Exodus last semester. So I'm going to guess that some of you could just come up here and teach it at this point, okay? I won't pop quiz you though. But what we're going to do tonight is look at these broad brushstrokes of Israel's history to see how they foreshadow a true and better reality to come. Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. But God used this to prepare a place for his people. Jacob's entire family ended up moving to Egypt so they would have provision during a time of famine. They enjoy favor and abundance in Egypt because of Joseph's good standing. God blesses his people. They are fruitful and multiply like rabbits until there's so many of them that there's this massive people group. And then a new pharaoh rises to power that doesn't know Joseph or their story. And he is threatened by their numbers. And so in an attempt to protect his kingdom, he enslaves them and oppresses them terribly. But even this, God declared to Abram in Genesis 15. He told him this would happen. Nothing is happening outside of God's sovereign hand. The parallel to the Israelite slavery is our own bondage to sin. Now, our bondage is self-induced. But we are equally as trapped and helpless as the Israelites were in slavery. The Israelites cry out to God in their distress. And after 400 years of slavery, God sends Moses as the deliverer. And through Moses, God sends terrible plagues on Egypt, essentially going toe-to-toe with their gods. And that final plague is death. Now, even the Israelites are not sinless. They, too, deserve the death penalty for their sins. So God provided a substitutionary sacrifice of that Passover lamb that when they would paint its blood on their door frames, the destroyer would see that covering and pass over it then. That terrible night finally prompted Pharaoh to release God's people from slavery. So here it is again, deliverance through judgment. God is mercifully providing a way through his wrath. Now this story, of course, foreshadows Jesus, our true and better Passover lamb, for it's only his blood that covers us and spares us the penalty of sin. There's a second part here, though. The Israelites' joy is (laughs) short-lived. 
No sooner do they get out so that Pharaoh changes his mind and sends all of his armies after them to pursue them. So they wind up with their backs against the Red Sea, trapped again. But here again, God provides miraculous deliverance through judgment. His people are given passageway through the sea, and then those very waters come back over the Egyptian army and destroy them. This story also carries a deeper symbolism that points us to believers' baptism, passing through the waters of death and rising to life on the other side. God makes a way for his own. We see that in the deliverance of the Passover and the Red Sea crossing. But once the adrenaline wears off, Israel realizes that they have a lot to learn. God covenants with them again through his law, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But it turns out it's really hard to trust God in the wilderness. Amen? Because of their lack of faith, they are subject to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That entire generation will not see the promised land, except for who? Joshua and Caleb. Do you see the mercy? Do you see the remnant preserved? It will be their children who will enjoy the abundance of Canaan while the rest live out their days as sojourners. And like the Israelites, we too spend our entire lives here on earth as sojourners longing for our true and better home. The last brushstroke is the promised land. They eventually did get there. And under Joshua's leadership, that next generation went in and conquered and settled into their new home. God had made good on his promise to Abraham. He accomplished his purpose regardless of the sin and unbelief of his people. Every word of the Lord will stand. And there is a true and better promised land that awaits the children of God. Our inheritance is unfading, kept in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. This is not just dead history. This is the living and active word of God by which he reveals himself and guides us into truth. Do you see him? We can look back and see the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God and know that he has not changed. We can look back and see how intentionally he was orchestrating all of these events and know he has not changed. He's not only the master storyteller, but he's the actual treasure that we find in the scriptures. So back to Israel. What was God's intention for these people? This is a really important question. And I spent an absorbent amount of time trying to write a summary. And I ended up back at God's words himself because he says it better than I. I mean, who would have thought, right? Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Look at those descriptions. Treasured possession. Kingdom of priests. Holy nation. What is God's heart behind those statements. Treasured possession just has that verbiage of relational belonging 
Reminds me of Eden, honestly, when the vertical relationship was intact the way that it was meant to be. We are meant to be his. Might I add, this is the very type of language that we don't expect to find in the Old Testament. Secondly, kingdom of priest. What is the role of a priest? It's mediating, right, between God and man. Now we know that the entire nation is obviously not going to serve in the office of priests. But as a whole, the nation is meant to mediate God's presence and blessing to the rest of the world. Remember, a spring that overflows its borders. All of the nations will be blessed through you. And a holy nation, everything about these people, their lives, their worship, their society is meant to reflect the character of God. This would immediately set them apart. They would look quite different from the pagan nations that surround them. The nation of Israel was to be the beginnings of God's kingdom on earth. What would it actually look like if we lived in submission to our creator and his design and we flourished? From our vantage point, we know this isn't going to go well, right? Israel will fail miserably at this mission, but I want you to see God's heart. And doesn't it remind you of that intention for creation we talked about at the beginning? That he desires to establish his kingdom among and through his people. It's the same heart. Israel was to be a specific vessel in that mission. God's plan of redemption will come forth through these broken but chosen people. So what does this mean for you in 2021? I opened trying to persuade you to why this matters how are we doing? There may be a lot of connections that you can tie from then to now. But ultimately what I want you to see is that God's heart remains the same. We've seen this plan of redemption unfold till today when we as a bunch of non-Israelites are part of God's family. This is our family history. And this is the origin of the church, the global church. And if God's heart remains the same, then this is still his heart for the church. Friends, look at these passages side by side. The top is what we just looked at in Exodus. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have God's heart for his people in Exodus, and we have God's heart for his people in 1 Peter, the New Testament written to everyone who is in Christ. I'll leave you with this quote from Pastor Mark Dever. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in the world. There is certainly an individual aspect to your faith. Every single person needs to have a personal encounter with the Lord where we repent of our sin and entrust ourselves to him in belief. 
But then realize you are joined into this massive spiritual family. God has grounded his purposes in a community of individuals, not just in a million individual islands. Why? Because he is a relational God. His very essence, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's extended himself in relationship to humanity. So if we as humans bear his image, how would we ever fully enjoy him or carry out this mission on our own? It just doesn't make sense. Oh, that we would live in God's kingdom design, together being his treasured possession, radiating the beauty of his holiness, and mediating his presence to a lost and broken world. Let's pray. Father, again, we just acknowledge our unworthiness that you have called us and claimed us as your own. We say thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace when there was nothing in us that deserved to be spared. God, would you just continue to plant these gospel truths deep into our hearts and minds and that we would live out of a genuine love and gratitude for you. I thank you that you have set us and set your plan in a community, a family, that regardless of how broken things may be, the heart here is still good. And so we hold fast to the good. Father, I pray you would continue to renew and sanctify your bride. May each of us just grow in our love for the church, grow in our love for you. Thank you for who you are and that we have the surety of your unchanging character. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.